Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is August Baker. Today I'm speaking with the American philosopher Pamela Hieronymi, who's professor of philosophy at UCLA. And we're talking about her Princeton University Press 2020 book, Freedom, Resentment, and the Metaphysics of Morals. And it's part of a series that Princeton University Press has called Monographs in Philosophy, edited by Harry G. Frankfurt. The description is short, argument-driven books by leading philosophers. Um, This book is um, short, 130 pages, 100 roughly from Professor Hieronymi, and um, 30 of it is a reprint of a classic article uh, by someone named P.F. Strawson, his article, Freedom and Resentment from 1962. So you can see the title of her book is Freedom, Resentment, and the Metaphysics of Morals. So the Freedom and Resentment refers to this uh, Strawson article. And Professor Hieronymi has done a very close read of the crucial few pages in that uh, article line by line, paragraph by paragraph. And, um, you know, one of the things that was said about this book is that it will from now on be essential as a reference for reading Strassen's paper. It would be difficult to think you could or would want to read Strassen's paper without um, looking through what she's done here. And secondly, the other title, the other part of the title is And the Metaphysics of Morals. And by that, I think what uh, is, is meant is uh, metaphysics of morals would be the underlying picture of morals. Um, the, um, so that in the course of looking at Strawson's paper, she's looking at the underlying nature of what we're really doing when we hold each other morally responsible. And so, for example, one, uh, Angela M. Smith said of this book, This is an exciting and groundbreaking book that has the potential to reshape our understanding of the nature of morality and our practices of holding one another responsible. I'm very pleased to speak with Professor Hieronymi about her book. Welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. I uh, I have to say, you know, I set aside time every day or in the days that I had I set aside time to read this book. I always really look forward to it. Um, It has a sort of, uh, um, to to take a a classic philosophical article and go through it step-by-step, it's kind of like um, being reading Plato or Aristotle, but without it being dated. It's very much... um, today. So I really enjoyed it. Anyway, the basic question here that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, is 
um, basically, on the one hand, we, we hold people morally responsible. But on the other hand, when we learn that someone has a illness, say, and Strawson's example is schizophrenia, or they have a brain tumor that affected them, we naturally feel differently about them. It affects us the way we feel about whatever we thought they did that was morally um, illicit. Uh, on the other hand, we also kind of all agree that we are, quote unquote, determined. That is, you take our genes and our environment and you get our behavior. And so the question becomes, why are we holding anyone responsible? Is that, is that fair to say is the basic questions that's being addressed here? Um, yes. Yeah, he's, he's uh, addressing the, quest, the, the um, question of free will and moral responsibility um, as it appears in the, um, in, in the contemporary, in its contemporary garb, which is, as you say, a question about um, determinism and, uh, and the possibility of freedom, or what he's in fact addressing is determinism and the possibility of moral responsibility. Um, and it's interesting that you say that uh, most everyone agrees because uh, um, in the philosophical community, there's a bunch of people who uh, I think would not agree that um, that we are um, un that that uh, there space divides between those who are um, compatibilists uh, who think that because who think that the truth of determinism is compatible with us being responsible and those who are incompatibilists who think that the truth of determinism is not compatible with us being responsible. And of the two, the incompatibilist position is the very natural one. So when you explain in my, when in my undergraduate class, um, I put forward determinism as the claim that um, each, each, thing in each um, macrophysical object, the movements of each macrophysical object are determined by what has come before, um, and which is in turn determined by what has come before, which is in turn by what has come before. So that given the complete, a complete description of the physical universe at one point in time, together with the laws of nature, you could with enough computing power deduce the complete description of the uh, physical universe at any other point in time, that picture um, seems to students uh, very threatening to our freedom. It now seems to them that we are not free and it seems to them that uh, it's no more sensible to hold any of us responsible than it would be sensible to hold responsible the person whose behavior we learned was determined by a tumor or by some other physical physical set of forces. Um, so that's the natural position uh, to, to, to arrive at. The, the, the first pass intuitive position is that if determinism is true, we couldn't be responsible. And, um, and Peter Strawson uh, really thinks that's kind of a non-starter uh, given his background picture of what the, what it is to be moral, morally responsible, uh, the, um, the nature of moral responsibility, which as you said, is what I'm using the word metaphysics to, to pick out the nature of a thing. And, um, and so that's a very surprising position that Strassen occupies to think that 
uh, that, that, that this very intuitive position is kind of a non-starter. Uh, and unearthing that underlying picture of the nature of what it is to be responsible that allows him to just dismiss this very natural challenge uh, is the is the task of the book. Before we get to um, Strassen's position, why is that? I mean, I can see it, 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 it could be threatening in a way because it's so different than the way we think, but it also seems um, liberating in the sense that we're, um, we have, we're what you might call radical acceptance is not something you hear these days, radically accepting everyone that some people wouldn't find that threatening. They would find that re relieving. Um, maybe um, it's um, the, the way in which people find it threatening is, is that it seems to them that if, um, if the entire history, sorry, if the future is already entirely fixed, given that the past is what it is, that, um, that what happens, people feel, is no longer um, really up to them, or they don't really make a difference, they start to feel. I understand. Okay. And it's also the case that, uh, and, and, and this is what you're getting at, and I think it's correct. It's also the case that um, so at least some of our moral intuitions seem to be predicated on the idea that we are free in a stronger sense. And that if we aren't free in that stronger sense, then we don't deserve certain forms of punishment or harsh treatment. Um, and it's that, um, it's that, realization that that sort of retributivist punishment may not be in place that that I think from my point of view would be the kernel of truth and the the, the relieved feeling you were suggesting right um, that 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 there's something I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize it as radical acceptance given that I think a great deal of our moral practices remain in place but I would characterize it as a as a giving much greater scope than we currently do to something I'd like to characterize as grace. Okay, that sounds good. Now, I, I would like to just, uh, if possible, um, uh, Strassen uses schizophrenia as an example. I was thinking an, another example that we could use if we think of it is what's called now borderline personality disorder which would be someone who is, um, has a very, um, very volatile um, mood, uh, very prone to anger, very prone to instability in relationships, going from idealization to complete devaluation. And when you're dealing with such a person, you're, once you realize that they have this diagnosis, you're going back and forth between getting irritated and then also thinking that the person, oh, wait a second, this is something the way they are determined. Do you think that's, that's relevant to this discussion? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So um, it, it's, it's going to be a, um, um, it's going to be a kind of case that I think sits uh, right at the border um, in between um, 
cases that are um, clearly exculpatory um, and cases that uh, we might think are cases of just viciousness, um, you know, determined viciousness. Right. Um, and one of the things that I um, have come to, I didn't at first find this attractive, but I've come to find attractive about the view is that uh, Strawson's view, I think makes that borderline um, difficult. And I think maybe it is difficult. And so I think it maybe it's a strength of the view that it reflects that difficulty. Exactly, yes. So Strawson starts off saying, let's move from punishment and moral condemnation to such things as gratitude, resentment, forgiveness, love, and hurt feelings. Let's keep before our minds what it's actually like to be involved in ordinary interpersonal relationships. He goes on to the, the, these distinctions, if you wouldn't, if you could uh, elaborate on reactive ad, participant attitudes, objective attitudes, um, and the so-called um, resource that we have. Yes. Good. So, um, so, so yes, the way he makes his argument that, um, that the truth of determinism is irrelevant to the question of whether we um, would or should go on holding one another responsible um, is to try to uh, bring into focus, as he puts it, what it's like to be involved in ordinary interpersonal relationships, which is to say he wants to identify what it is to be responsible, what it is to be a morally responsible person, or some, as um, philosophers sometimes put it, a morally responsible agent, he wants to identify that as um, being a proper, uh, I shouldn't say proper, being a term in certain sorts of interpersonal relationships, right. being, a, being a part of certain sorts of relationships. Uh, and, and he thinks that the fact that we're part of relationships in which we matter to one another in this distinctive way, in which we're subject to these um, reactive attitudes, which I'll explain in a second, um, he thinks that's just a natural feature of humanity and not one that needs to be justified or not. And so not one that stands unjustified if determinism is true. But backing up, what does he mean by mattering to one another? What are these attitudes? Uh, that's the main, that, excuse me, has been the main um, legacy of this paper, which has been, had a tremendous legacy, but its main um, impact has been to, to bring into philosophical discussion this distinction between reactive attitudes and, and a more objective attitude. So the reactive attitudes are, um, responses we have to our perception of the quality of somebody's will towards us or other people. So roughly reactions we have in response to whether or not we or others have been respected or disregarded. And these are things like resentment and indignation and distrust on the negative side or admiration and uh, trust and gratitude on the positive side. And they contrast with uh, more objective attitudes. So, um, for example, if um, if I find that my uh, car has a flat tire, if I go try to drive to work and I find that my car has a flat tire uh, because some nail I ran over a nail, I'll be frustrated. Um, I'm, I might be somewhat angry, um, but if I find that somebody has slashed my tire. <laughs> I will feel quite differently about it. Right. Um, uh, likewise, if I if I um, 
if a board bears my weight when I need to cross some some uh, crevice, I might be relieved that, that the board uh, held me up. If somebody supports me, I will be grateful. Um, so, so he points out this fact about us, which is extremely interesting, which is that we have a, a set of attitudes or sort of quasi-emotional responses that seem um, custom-made for our form of sociability and for our form of, of relating to other people as part of our society. Um, and they are um, attitudes that um, will in fact function to um, constitute a set of expectations that we hold one another to. Uh, so he in fact identifies social expectations of uh, respecting one another with our proneness to respond in these positive and negative ways when those expectations are um, violated or um, superseded. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we sort of all sit down and draw up a set of moral laws and, and publish them. Instead, it's that we are in a system in which people react to us in this way and being reacted to in these different ways is what holds those expectations in place. So, um, so the emotions um, which we feel are natural or to, which come naturally to us are reflecting the, um, or are the demands we're making on, on people. They're the flip side of those demands. Yeah, so it's like they're two sides of one coin. So one side is we think, you know, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat, you shouldn't steal. Uh, and the other side is we respond with indignation or resentment if you do those things. Um, and, and he's thinking that there is this moral and interpersonal framework of expectations and demands that is essential to our being social creatures who live in a, who live in a society. Now, it's very important that What's natural is just that we have some or another system of these demands. So it's the, the specific ones that are ex in existence in any particular culture, um, that's not what he's interested in. He's, in, he's not interested in the, the content. He's just interested in the general form that human sociability is such that we care about how we figure into other people's worlds. We have expectations and demands that other people will will give us and ours due regard. And the manifestation of that is in these, is in this um, form of reactive attitudes that we have. And so that's the metaphysics of, that's the underlying metaphysics of morals in, 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 in brief. Right, and um, so you say here, it has not generally been noticed that Strassen is sketching a metaphysics of morals. One he paints by observing our actual practices in his style of, quote, descriptive metaphysics, which is an interesting term. Can you say a little bit more about that? I can say a little bit. Yeah. So um, in an in a, uh, earlier, I think. 61, I think you had it. Yeah. Um, uh, which is a, his one of his very well-known books, Individuals, he uh, in the preface of that, I think, um, sketches what he, a distinction between what he calls revisionary and descriptive metaphysics. 
And then he starts categorizing philosophers as whether they're, they're revisionary metaphysicians or whether they're descriptive metaphysicians, um, where the, the, the metaphysician is again, somebody who's trying to discern the nature of things that you would not discern just by doing experiments. Um, and, uh, uh, and the revisionary metaphysician um, is the one who is going to, uh, who, who pays less attention to how we actual, our actual thought and language and concepts and practices, um, and just tries to make, make, make a sensible frame, a sensible framework, a, a, sensual, a sensible picture for us to inhabit. Interesting. Okay. Whereas and the descriptive one is the one who comes and kind of as an almost my picture of this is like almost as an archaeologist with his soft bristled brush and tries to sweep away the um, the de uh, the debris of, uh, of of conceptual clutter and dust that might have accumulated on our concepts and our ideas and unearth the actual form of our thought about something. And, and so Strassen sees himself as working in that second way. So here I'm going to ask you a question, which it went over my head and it may be impossible to answer in a podcast. But one of the things you said was um, Strassen here claims that a minimal morality is a condition on the existence of any social organization. Moreover, he thinks that the demands of such a system will be pretty regularly fulfilled. Um, then you say, we have here the ingredients for a transcendental argument moving from the existence of society to the satisfaction of the conditions required for it, the typical observance of a minimal set of rules. And then if you're really brave, <laughs> there's a footnote. We can compare this to Donald Davidson and W.V. O'Quine. I think I'm asking you too much, but is it possible to sketch an answer to yeah. that? Yeah, no, and I mean that's really the heart of the of the form of argument um, that he's that he's after. So, so a transcendental argument there, all 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 that means in that sentence is it's an argument from the the existence of something to the actuality of the conditions for its possibility. Um, so, if something is actual, then whatever was required to make it for it to be possible must also be actual. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so here he's saying um, there's certain minimal, um, minimal standards that have to be met for there to be a society. What are those? Uh, you can't have widespread deception. You can't have widespread killing. Um, you can't have widespread um, uh, um, theft. So, um, I mean, at a certain point, if there's too much of that, people will will um, fend for themselves and not come together in the cooperative way required for there to be a society. So that's pretty minimal, right? Right. But if you have a society at all, the thought is there's some minimal set of conditions, of, of expectations that will be met. And so you can make this transcendental argument from the fact that we do have a society to the fact that we do have some minimal set of expectations and they're generally satisfied. Okay. Um, uh, the, the comparison to Quine and Davidson, so uh, Quine had wanted us to think about 
the possibility of radical interpretation. So the thought is you're sort of parachuted down into um, a culture that you don't speak the language. How are you going to start to translate that language? The thought is in order to do that, you have to assume that most of what's said is true. Okay, I understand. Um, and if you and if you didn't make that assumption, you wouldn't be able to translate. Mm -hmm. But from there, you can kind of get to the conclusion mm -hmm. that um, that that speakers couldn't always be wrong. Good, right? right. Yep. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of argument that's being made. Okay. Um, and so, and so, Strassen now thinking about the possibility of us being responsible. He's thinking of um, the threat of determinism as the threat of saying that instead of responding to one another with these participant reactive attitudes of resentment and indignation, um, that in light of the truth of determinism, we should instead opt for more objective attitudes of just frustration and disappointment, say the way we would react to a natural disaster. Um, and he thinks that um, um, though we do sometimes react to people like the schizophrenic, as though they're uh, in this more objective way. He thinks that we do that um, only, this is my argument and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's controversial, um, but, but I argue that the way to understand him is that he's saying that we do that only in the outlier cases, only in the cases in which, um, in those cases in which it's no longer possible to really um, interact with somebody in the usual way. You know, so the, 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 the range of humanity is wide. And in the case of small children, in the case of advanced dementia, in the case of certain um, kind of outlier cases, trying to interact with somebody in the usual, have, having the usual expectations and demands and the usual responses to that becomes unworkable. And in those cases, he thinks, um, we, we move to the more objective attitude. But he's thinking that couldn't be the case all the time. It couldn't be the case that everyone's an outlier. It couldn't be the case that everyone's exceptional in the same way that it couldn't be the case that everything anybody says is false. Right. And, and so we already know, he thinks, that uh, for most of us, most of the time, this form of life is workable. And all it needs to be is workable uh, to be there's no question of its there's no question of its legitimacy as long as you're asking about the form itself. There might be questions of legitimacy about the particular demands we make of people. The particular ways we hold them responsible might be unreasonable. Right. But engaging in some kind of system like this, he thinks, as long as it's workable, um, there's no problem with it. And it's obviously workable, so there's no problem with it. That's that's very clear and helpful. Um, let's back up a little bit, because I think one of the interesting things about this article, and you say you remember reading it for the first time, is his rhetoric, which is um, he makes his central argument, which uh, it sounds like it can't be true when he first makes it. And as you say, it depends on outliers and who would think that a philosopher would be talking about outliers. And there's a bit of, um, uh, I, I don't know, the rhetoric of he kind of surprises the reader 
because he knows the reader is thinking that he's missing something. And then he says, you may think this, but if you're thinking this, you have no idea <laughs> what he's been saying. Right. Could, could, could you uh, take us through that, the, the central seemingly facile argument and, and um, his, his, his rhetoric along that? Yes. So um, let's see, where, where, where should I start? Um, so he says, it seems says, like- it, it, yeah, I was gonna say, it cannot, he says the participant attitude and personal reactive attitudes tend to give place and it is judged by the civilized should give place to objective attitudes insofar as the agent is seen as excluded from ordinary human relationships by abnormality. But it cannot be a consequence of any thesis which is not self-contradictory that abnormality is the universal condition. That's a surprise. So yeah. It's super surprising, right? right? And, and, and he says, this may, uh, this, uh, may seem altogether too facile. And so in a sense it is. And then he says, but whatever is overlooked in uh, this dismissal is allowed for in the only possibility that remains. And then he goes on and it's, that was the paragraph that, I, that, that led me to think, I do not understand his argument here and I need to sit down and spend what ended up being a few years with it, um, trying to un unearth what would have led someone to write those sentences in that order? Like what, what, was, what were the assumptions in his head that allowed those sentences in that order to seem like the right thing to say? Um, so, uh, so the idea that um, uh, it, it cannot be a consequence of any thesis that is not itself self-contradictory, that universality is the, uh, sorry, that abnormality is the universal condition. That's just a, fancy mid-century English way of saying, it can't be the case that everyone's abnormal. Um, and, uh, and, okay. and then he earlier um, said that the only reason we exempt people is because they're abnormal. And if it can't be the case that everyone's abnormal, then it can't be the case that, everyone's that we have reason to exempt everyone. Um, that argument uh, goes very quickly and it's overlooked by everybody because as you say, it, it relies on this idea that we exempt the abnormal and no ethicist um, is even gonna see that, see that claim that, that the basis for exemption is abnormality. No, no ethicist is gonna see that as a, as a, that's just a non-starter from the point of view of an ethicist because it, it opens up of an objectionable form of relativism, which I try to deal with in the, in the, in the last chapter of the book. Um, but Strawson um, can, can make the, I mean, so, so the challenge of the book in a way is to try to make sense of why Strawson thinks he can make this argument that quickly. Yeah. Um, and I think once you see the underlying picture with which he's working, according to which, um, it's just part of our natural sociability that we, uh, just a fact about us, sort of like the fact that we breathe air um, and live on land, that we engage with one another um, in this sort of way. Um, once you see that and accept his starting point, then, then I think the argument does come very quickly. Um, and, and, and you point out that it depends on our capacities, right? The, the reactions that we would 
have would depend if we had different capacities we'd have different um rea reactive emotions yes so this is one of the things that i think is one of the more interesting upshots of having spent so much time trying to work out what might be on this man's mind um is that the argument that, that sorry the underlying picture um has the feature it's the feature that allows them to um to avoid the bad consequence about determinism, that our expectations and demands um, are custom fit, so to speak, to whatever capacities we happen to have. Um, so the way I illustrate this in the book uh, is with a kind of thought experiment. Um, so I start with the idea that, um, that as we are now, uh, drunkenness, uh, often it, uh, is a grounds for um, either exemption or using the resource. We, we didn't talk about that, but that's a kind of version of, of exemption. So, so if you're out with your friends and uh, for an occasional night on the town and somebody gets really drunk and says something mean, um, you know, a, a lot of times we just say, uh, they were drunk, whatever, and we sort of bl blow it off. Um, if, um, if use, occasional use becomes regular abuse, we might then have to start to kind of use our resource to, to work at keeping ourselves from reacting to that person in quite the same way. Right. And if we think of them as an alcoholic and as suffering from a disease, then we think of them as exempted in certain, in certain ways. So, so we suspend our usual expectations for somebody who is, is drunk in, in ways, just the ways that I think that Strawson's framework would predict. But then I say, um, the thought experiment is this, suppose that we all came naturally equipped with only that degree of um, attention, impulse control and memory that we now have when we're pretty inebriated. In that circumstance, an outward observer might see, things might seem very similar to an outward observer, observer because people would not respond to certain outbursts as though they were um, you know, with resentment or indignation or what have you. Right. But in that circumstance, it wouldn't be because we were all always suspending our reactive attitudes. It would instead be that the expectations and demands had adjusted to fit our, our ordinary capacities. So the picture that emerges, and, I, and this is one that I like a lot and think is true, is that, um, is that morality uh, or moral moral expectations and demands are more like um, a hymn than they are like an opera. So an opera you could write for your star performer, whereas a hymn needs to be written for kind of the B minus um, congregant. So the mm. morality is it, it is sort of one size fits all, and it's written in a way that captures most of us doesn't capture all of us, right? So I, I'm a terrible, I'm terrible, I'm a terrible singer. Um, and so the, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to keep up with even the B minus hymns, um, but the hymns don't adjust to find me. Um, and my husband's a terrific singer and the hymns don't adjust to show off his capacities. They're, they're just made for most of us. Right. Um, and so the thought here is that that our ordinary interpersonal expectations and demands are similarly made for most of us. Right. And they can and will adjust 
to the capacities on the ground. There's ways in which that's very attractive because um, you can have kind of subcultures and sub-societies in which, um, say, in a home for the, um, for the memory impaired, you're going to have a different set of standards. Maybe in a juvenile detention center, you're going to have a different set of expectations. In a nursing home. In, right. And, and, and then the, the, the expectations could also rise if, as a culture, we become more sensitive or more generous or what have you. It has a downside, and this is the relativism I meant to speak to earlier, which is that um, it, it doesn't seem that there is, in, in, in anything I've said so far, anything to stop those expectations and demands from finding the lowest common denominator. And so in a situation in which people are, um, certain classes of people are very, um, it's just ordinary to, to, to treat them badly, it will, it seems as though this picture, this metaphysics of morals is going to end up um, saying that that's okay, that that's right. not a form of, of disrespect. So, um, so that I think is a, is the, the, the reason why this interpretation didn't occur to the ethicist reading the paper is that, is that it's so obvious that it has, that this interpretation has that, that devas apparently devastating problem. Um, and, and like I said, I, I try to, give Strassen some resources to, to cope with it uh, in the end. In the last chapter, yes. uh, when you bring in ideals, um, and yes. yes. Um, and I would love to talk about the last chapter, but since we're um, time constrained, uh, yeah, I did, uh, I was very interested in that. Um, I think what you do, you seem to defend Strassen, but then you also are kind of playing chess against yourself. You're also thinking up the best possible argument against him and presenting one right. after the other, which is interesting. Um, the resource, uh, it, if I'm thinking about dealing with a, someone who has borderline personality disorder, to me, the resource is that moment where it feels like you have, well, I shouldn't say that. The resource is defined uh, more specifically, but it's, um, I shouldn't use the, the example of borderline personality disorder, but it's that moment where you think someone is normal, but you feel like you have some free, you have some will where you can not go down that reactive path. Uh, where you, where you, you, you step away, as Strassen puts it, um, sometimes to avoid the strains of involvement. Right. or some, for, sometimes for, for curiosity, or sometimes because you're engaged in social policy making. And, you know, you just have to accept as a fact that people are going to be, you know, crappy sometimes, and think about how to handle that. Right. So it, it, the, the, the resource happens when you start treating a person as an issue, as we say, like, oh, him, yeah, he's right. an issue. Right. Um, and so when we, um, so Strassen, has this central seemingly facile argument um and then we talk about our natural reactions why statistics matter he's concerned about whether the resource might generalize is that mm -hmm. that's fair? my interpretation yeah. yeah yeah and um then uh he um goes into this social naturalism. Um, I guess this might be 
the last question, but I thought it would be interesting for the listeners to hear about, uh, I guess at the beginning, you, you had a kind of uh, Humean interpretation of Strassen's argument or Wittgensteinian, and you end up with this social naturalism, which is neither. Could you uh, go through those? Uh, yeah, in a way, we've we've already um, covered the ground for it. So, um, so the the article has been in, interpreted uh, up till now largely in one of two different ways. One is a broadly Humean way, according to which Strassen's just saying that um, given the facts of our psychology, um, it's not possible for us to react to people any differently, um, and so because it's not possible, we shouldn't worry about it that's um, a very dissatisfying philosophically right. um, position, but he does say things in, in the paper that seem to say that. Um, the Wittgensteinian response is the one that we were talking about when we were talking about Quine, and it's, it's the idea that you can't, um, you can't criticize a practice as a whole using terms that uh, rely for their meaning on the existence of that practice. Um, now that's a controversial claim, but, but the idea is roughly, um, it makes no sense to claim that baseball, the game of baseball is foul in the sense that's constituted by the rules of baseball. Foul in that sense is something that makes sense within the game. You can't get outside of the game and apply it. And so the Wittgensteinian argument is, is saying that Strassen's accusing his opponent of making that kind of sort of sophisticated conceptual error. And that would be the, the question um, of whether we should, um, whether it would be moral to, to, be, to suspend our reactive attitudes. So it would be the question of whether it would be um, just for us to continue in morality. The thought would be, Questions of justice are questions within morality, just like mm -hmm. questions of being foul or within baseball. Gotcha. And the same way it makes no sense to ask whether the game itself is fair or foul. So it makes no sense to ask whether morality itself is just or unjust. Um, so that's closer to the interpretation that I think I end up with. Um, but in a, in a much later set of lectures, the lectures given I think in the eighties, um, Strassen himself, goes through um, Hume and Wittgenstein and, and puts forward his view of which he calls social naturalism, which is the, uh, which he contrasts with both Hume and Wittgenstein, but then tries to set out his own picture, um, which, is, um, in, which is roughly that there are certain aspects of our um, existence that are not up for questions of justification. Um, they're natural facts of our existence. They set the terms for the questions of justification that we can ask within them. So, um, so one of the um, examples he likes to use is the case of induction, the case of believing that th the future will be like the past. Hume famously pointed out that we can't justify the principle believe that the future will be like the past because it seems as though um, the only reason to do that is because the future has been like the past. Right. Sorry, yeah, the, the things have been the way they have mm -hmm. gone before, but that's question begging. Mm. So, so Strassen's thinking that there are certain um, facts about us that we need to accept 
as setting the terms or the framework within which um, we can then ask questions of justification. Um, and, but, but with Wittgenstein, he thinks that those could change. So it's not the case that with Hume thought they were, they were just a few things and they were given to us. Wittgenstein thought, no, they're socially given and they can evolve historically, but that doesn't mean that we can, so to speak, leap outside of them and question them. Um, so that's a rough overview. Um, uh, this is the topic that I feel like I have the least, um, the, the least firm grip on. Um, and, and, and it's what I'm kind of now uh, really most interested in. in oh, okay. But, Interesting. Um, but, but that's the rough idea. Okay. And um, well, I said those are my last two. I have so many more questions, but it's a great, it's a very great read. It's like uh, going back in time and uh, thinking about these basic principles. And uh, so congratulations on this great book. And I really appreciate your, your talking with us today. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so pleased that you, that you enjoyed it. It's a, um, it is a very close read. Uh, so um, I, I'm glad, I'm glad that it worked out for you. <laughs> okay, thanks.